Okay, welcome guys. Um, so today we're doing, we're going to do two books. We're going to do both Mark and Matthew's, and not Matthew, Luke's Gospel. Um, so we, we're doing them together because uh, essentially we would be kind of retracing the same things that we've, we've already touched on, even though there's a lot of different things in this Gospel that we, we haven't seen yet. Um, hopefully by the end of the session, you'll get to see um, how they are different, what we can learn from these Gospels. And as usual, if you guys have any questions, any thoughts, any comments, uh, please feel free to stop me. Uh, feel free to ask, feel free to contribute. Uh, the goal is to have interaction. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark's Gospels. We're going to start with Mark. And Mark's Gospel is it's primarily written to a Gentile audience. Right? It's written to the Gentiles. And how do we know that? What are some of the internal evidences? That suggests this. So if you read if you read through Mark's gospel, you will see that he explains Jewish traditions. Have you noticed that? You'll notice that he explains things like washing of hands or some other customs. If the audience was Jewish, he wouldn't have to explain that, obviously. So Mark will also translate some Aramaic sayings. So when Jesus is on the cross being crucified, he says, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani. And Mark explains that it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You wouldn't have to translate it for a Jewish audience, right? They would know what it means. And Mark will also use Latin words. So obviously we have an English translation, so you wouldn't see that. But he uses a lot of Latin words. And remember, the Romans spoke Latin. And he would use Latin terms without explaining it. So that's one of the ways we know that it was written for a Gentile audience probably a Roman Gentile audience, right? So Mark will also mention some people in Rome, which we pick up later in the letter to the Romans. So we can narrow it down to him writing to the church in Rome. So there aren't, there aren't many passages citing the Old Testament in this book because it wouldn't mean much to a Roman audience, right? The, gen the Gentiles generally wouldn't know the Old Testament. So it is being written to Romans. And remember, this society is an oral society. When they got copies of literature, they wouldn't make more copies and distribute it to the people for them to take home and read. They would read the literature out in public for everyone to hear. So people would gather and they would listen to what is being, to what is being said. And you can tell that Mark is perfectly tailored for that. It's meant to be read out. Today, we get together for church on a Sunday and we open maybe a chapter or a portion of scripture. But at that time, the whole book would be read at one go. So, and so the style of Mark allows for that. His style of writing, his style of writing is not a good style, right? It's not like some masterpiece of writing. It's like, it's like a grade nine student's writing. Right? It's not really sophisticated. It's not nuanced. Um, it's just action-packed. This book is action-packed. Mark is always, I think it's 42 times in the whole book that he uses the word immediately. So he will say, and immediately Jesus did this, and immediately Jesus did that. When you read this book, you will pick up that he uses, uh, and then, right? And then this happened, and then that happened, and immediately they went there. And It's like a kid telling a story, right? There's no full stop. It's just ongoing. 
So you could read this book and think that everything is happening within two days. But what is happening is Mark's writing is contextualized for a Roman audience. The Romans are the type to, to watch the Avengers instead of Pride and Prejudice, right? They, they are a people all about action. Uh, the Romans are probably like us. You know, today we into our action movies, fast-paced uh, information, you know, instant things must happen now. And so Mark deals with that, right? This is what he gives them. It's an action-packed gospel. Notice that Jesus is hardly standing still in this gospel. He's always doing something. He's a man of action. He's casting out demons here. He's healing over there. He's feeding the multitudes, immediately doing this and then that and that. And so that's what you pick up. It's a, that's why uh, it's one of the reasons why it's also like a short book, right? Mark's gospel is short. It's the shortest gospel because Mark doesn't really bother with details. It's just what happens next. This happens and then he moves on. So if you turn to chapter one, Mark begins his gospel with a statement. Uh, Mark 1 verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So remember how Matthew uses Son of God? He uses it to refer to Christ as fulfilling the Davidic covenant. Mark uses the phrase Son of God. He uses it quite a lot. And him using it was significant to the Romans. So when we looked at the intertestamental period, we saw how there was this whole thing that starts to come about that an emperor is a god or that he's a son of god so when you're reading this the the phrase son of god to me and you that's jesus right it's quite obvious but to but to the romans at that time the son of god is the caesar he's the emperor so here's another man jesus claiming to be the son of god and and so it's a clash right so, Son of God is filled with meaning, especially to the audience that is listening. Here, you have the Caesar, and we know later on in history, Caesar would begin to demand worship. Right? He'd be claiming to be the Son of God and demand people to worship him. And so, Mark says, here is the real Son of God, and this Son of God has real power. He heals people, he feeds people, he even walks on water. But it is also really strange because this man is a servant. So, that is different, right? Jesus... Jesus is Lord, he's king, but he also came to serve. So Jesus says, Jesus will even say that not like the Gentiles who lord it over one another, but if you want to be great, you have to be the servant of all, right? So put yourself in that Roman mindset, which is easier for us than to, you know, put ourselves in a Jewish mindset. And you begin to see how here is real action and real power from the real son of God. And he serves and he's actually going to die. So in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is a teacher, right? That's, that's something, that's the main thing that stands out about him there. But in Mark's gospel, Jesus is a man of action. And that appeals to the Roman mindset. So again, verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he speaks about the gospel, the good news. Remember, gospel means good news. And it was a significant phrase that carried a lot of weight and meaning. We, I think we discussed this on Monday how during the Roman Empire, there was a town crier and he would announce, announce important things for the city. He would only announce good news on two occasions. When the Roman army went out to war and they came back and, ha and they had defeated their enemies, the town crier would go to the main square and shout, good news, good news. The army has returned and they conquered their enemies. And secondly, when a son was born to the emperor, right? Good news, good news. A son has been born to the emperor. And you can see how Christ fulfills these things. The Son of God who conquers our great enemies 
and the, and the Son of God, right? So death and sin has been conquered. So it's very important that we get the gospel right. Often when you ask professing Christians, they don't know what the gospel is, right? Go up to someone and say, tell me the gospel. And it's amazing. Well, it's actually it's actually really sad. It's quite sad that Christians will be like, oh yeah, well, I never really thought about that, right? And what Christians tend to say is, the gospel is repent and put your trust in Jesus. And is that the gospel? No, it's not. That is not any part of the gospel. That is a response to the gospel. Is it good news if I say from today on you should never sin again? It's not good news. It's not good news if I say pray three times a day. Or if you have enough money, go to Jerusalem, go to Mecca. Or make sure you reach a certain level of enlightenment. Or abstain from this kind of food and this kind of drink. That is just religion. The gospel is true good news because it's not what we have done. It is what Christ has done. It is what God has done in Christ. His perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection, which vindicates his whole ministry and proves that he was without sin and proves that he was the son of God. That is the good news. It's what he has done. And so the good news is not an imperative. It's not a command, right? It's a statement. It's a statement of what God has done in Christ. You and I respond to that either by faith and repentance or with rebellion and rejection. Those are the only two options. There's only two responses to the gospel. So if you go to chapter 2, Mark 2, Jesus is preaching. He's preaching the word. And there are some people gathered and the room is full. And a paralytic man is lowered into the room through the roof by his friends so that he can hear Jesus preach. And the man is completely paralyzed. And so what does Jesus say to him? Verse 5 of chapter 2 says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So you and I would probably be thinking, Wait a minute, this guy's paralyzed. Right? That's, that's his biggest need, to have his body physically restored so that he can live a normal life. But Jesus sees straight through that. Uh, being paralyzed is not his biggest need. His biggest need is to have his sins forgiven. And that's what our biggest need is as well. Right? That's our biggest problem. Sin is our enemy and we need to be forgiven of our sin. And this is a good passage uh, to use for those who, um, who, who deny that Jesus is God, right? Because notice how the people around Jesus are, are angered, right? They're angered when, when this happens and they say that, they say correctly that only God can forgive sins, right? Because what we see in, and what we see in this passage is that the people are right, Right? The scribes, they know the Old Testament. They know it very well. They know that only God can forgive sins. And so Christ is blaspheming unless he's God. Right? And Jesus is God. And here he is forgiving the sins of the paralytic man. So remember that Jesus has, remember Jesus has never met this man. I can go to my brother and punch him in the nose and afterwards say, Sorry, please forgive me because I sinned against you by assaulting you. But here, Jesus is saying to a guy who he has never humanly met before, your sins are forgiven. I'm sure this man is thinking, what? Like, I've never done anything to you. When did I sin against you? What can I do against you? I'm paralyzed. But Jesus is God. And remember that all sin is ultimately against him. Psalm 51, Psalm 51 teaches us that. David says in Psalm 51, uh, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
So David says that in the psalm, right after he had slept with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. And yet, can you see that he's repenting towards God first and foremost, right? Uh, he's not even mentioning Bathsheba or uh, Uriah. He's saying, against you and only you, Lord, have I sinned. So our biggest need is to have our sins forgiven. And the good news is that Jesus Christ is the sacrifice that pays, uh, the sacrifice that atones for our sin. So, um, after, after, basically, after chapter 1, right, of Mark, the book is a very negative book. It's not a happy book at all. It doesn't even have a happy ending. It focuses on the sufferings of Christ. It focuses on the hardships of being a disciple of Jesus. The disciples are portrayed as being idiots who Jesus gets frustrated with. They don't get anything. They don't understand. They keep failing and they keep stumbling. Overall, Mark's Gospel is a negative book. Some opponents of Christianity claim, yes, Jesus did exist, but that his followers, the disciples, they just made a cult about him and they built up this, this edifice. They built up this myth around him, right? They made up all these extraordinary stories about an ordinary guy and that is where Christianity come from, right? That's what some people say about Christianity. But if you're going to create a religion for yourself, surely you're going to make yourself look good, right? You're not going to write Mark's gospel where you as a disciple look like an idiot all the time. Surely not. And when it comes to discipleship, to being a follower of Christ, it is difficult, right? We see that with the disciples and Jesus will have to keep teaching them again and again because they keep failing again and again. But it's important for us to have this recorded uh, for us to read because not everything in the Christian life is happy, happy, happy. Just being a Christian, a follower of Christ is difficult. Discipleship is, is hard. That's why when he calls the first disciples, Jesus made certain that they understood the cost of following him. He said that God's kingdom for God's people must be the first priority. In, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus said that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his, his father, his mother, his wife, children and brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Right. And then Jesus says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. So Jesus tells us to think and count the cost of being his disciples. Are you willing to leave everything behind for the sake of Christ? Even your parents and your siblings and your spouse, even your job or your career, your reputation, your wealth. Are you willing to forsake everything for the sake of following Jesus Christ? Because if you can't, then Jesus says you cannot be his disciple. God is not calling perfect people to be his ambassadors in the world. There wasn't a perfect man among the 12 disciples. There's only one kind of disciple that Jesus really has. And that's an imperfect one that is trusting in his perfection. So if you, are, if you are so weak on some days that you can't get out of bed in the morning without wondering who will deliver you from this body of death, but you're turning to Jesus for the strength you need, then you're the perfect disciple for Christ. And as disciples of Christ, as followers of Jesus, you and I, are, we're very weak and we fail daily. And that is what you see very clearly in Mark's gospel. The 12 disciples... Uh, uh, they fail miserably time and time again. And like I said, Jesus gets frustrated with them. They don't get anything. They don't understand anything. And we can go to a few examples. So look at chapter 4. If you go to Mark chapter 4 quickly. 
So in chapter 4, um, he gives them the parable of the sower, but they don't get it. And then he says to them, verse 13, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? And Jesus then, and then after that, he warns them uh, to be cautious of having hardened hearts. And then if you go down also to chapter 7 of Mark. So Mark 7, verse 14. Yeah, verse 14 says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Right, again, you see that frustration coming through. And if you go down to chapter 8, so Mark chapter 8, um, verse 14 and he says now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat and he cautioned them saying watch out beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread and Jesus aware of this said to them why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four, four and the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? So over and over again. Uh, the disciples fail and they don't get it. They don't understand. And Jesus even warns them of, of becoming hard-hearted like the Pharisees were. In, in becoming hard-hearted, they would turn away from the truth. They would turn from the light to the dark, just like the Pharisees. So what are we to make of the portrayal of the disciples in Mark's gospel? Why does Mark present the disciples sometimes in a positive way, but mostly negative ways? For one, we see the reality of human existence before God. Right? In the disciples, we see human failure and human possibility before God. Right? And it's occurring in the lives of real people. So that you and I, we confront, we're confronted by our own reality as followers of Jesus. You and I are called to faith and discipleship, which is defined not only in following Jesus, but also in dependence on God. So Jesus is the true model of discipleship, right? He thinks, he, he, who thinks the things of God and is dependent on the Spirit of God to carry out God's will. So the disciples are presented as often weak followers of Jesus, and that's what you and I are. So we have to rely on Christ. Our relationship to God comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember that Jesus followed God perfectly. The disciples didn't. So you and I can, can either follow the examples of the disciples, which will lead to misunderstanding and failure, or we can follow the examples of the example of Jesus that will lead to understanding and faithfulness before God. So the negative presentation of the disciples is meant to remind Mark's audience and to remind you and I that we are also prone to failure and sin and to denying and deserting the Lord Jesus Christ and to becoming like those who represent Satan, like Peter did. 
right? You see that in chapter 8, verse 33. So even though the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Christ is high, the reward is great, right? The reward is, the reward is even greater, and we'll see um, how, how Jesus describes it uh, in a few, uh, I think it's in chapter 10 just now. Um, in chapter 9, Jesus heals a, a boy with an unclean spirit, and there's a man, and so there's a man, and his son is possessed by an unclean spirit, and he comes to Christ and asks him to cast the spirit out. He had brought the boy to the disciples, but they couldn't cast it out. And Jesus' frustration is clear. In verse 19 of chapter 9, he says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So the father seeks help through Jesus' miraculous powers. And he asked, he asked the Lord if he can do anything, right? Jesus corrects the father's statement by calling on him to have faith and to put his trust in God. So he says, but if you can do anything, so the father's like, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the Lord, sorry, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So I believe, help my unbelief. And that is, that is an amazing confession of the father here. It's a confession that we are familiar with. If not, it's something that you and, you and I should be very familiar with. The father here confesses that he has some faith, but he struggles. He acknowledges his spiritual weakness. Right? He has, he has unbelief, but notice who he appeals to to help him in his unbelief. He's asking the Lord to create in him a heart that believes more firmly. Right? So we read in scripture and God's commands to us, are always in absolute terms, right? You must have faith. You must be a believer. You must obey. It's absolute, 100% faith, uh, 100% obedience, complete and utter devotion in Christ to Christ in obedience. We see absolutes in the word, but when we look at our own hearts, it's never the case, right? I have some faith. I have faith, but there's some doubt here, Lord. Uh, there is some unbelief. There's a lack of trust. There is a fear of man mixed in with the fear I have for you, Lord. I hate my sin, but there's a part of me that still hungers and craves and delights in going back to my sin. So we believe, but we also have unbelief. It's, it's a profound, difficult, confusing, and it's a common experience. All followers of Jesus have both belief and unbelief, right? Both faith and doubt present in us at the same time. Remember, Peter walked on water only to start sinking when unbelief set in. Uh, doubting Thomas declared that he will never believe without, without physical proof of Jesus' resurrection. And he, he proclaimed his unbelief. And yet he still had enough belief to stay with the other disciples un until Jesus finally appeared to him. So we wrestle and we fight with our own hearts. You know, you read the Psalms and you see the Psalm writers expressing their temptation to unbelief, right? They struggle with trusting God. And we see it in ourselves. At least, at least I do. And this is a prayer. This Father's prayer is a desperate one. And one that I relate to very well and I think a lot of believers do. Because unbelief is what we are constantly tempted towards, right? But it's not something that even though... We, we face it every day. It's not something that we should take lightly. It is spiritually dangerous to our souls. 
the book of Hebrews tells us that it could lead to us falling away from the living God. And whenever you sin, whatever the sin is, the root of it is unbelief. Whatever the sin, it comes from unbelief. And so repenting of unbelief means that you are turning to faith. When I repent of the sin of unbelief in my heart, I don't do it by turning to another place in my heart and looking for something called faith. Right? Faith does not look at faith. I hope you get what I mean by that. Don't look at unbelief in your heart and say, let me try and find faith. Rather, when you see unbelief, look to Christ. Right? Faith looks to Jesus. Faith is the looking to Christ. That, that, this is why the preaching of the gospel is so encouraging. Because it invites you to look up, to look up and to look away. The gospel invites you to look away from yourself and all your troubles and all your unbelief and to look to Christ. The Father in this passage doesn't say, let me go and work on myself, Lord Jesus Christ. You know, He doesn't say, I will come back with a better heart or I'll come back with less unbelief or with more faith or whatever. No, he looks to Christ and he asks him. And we can trust the Lord because he is the good physician. Right? Scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus is the good phys physician. Um, he does not coddle and toy with doubt and unbelief, just like a good doctor doesn't coddle and play with the cancer in a patient, right? He makes sure that it's eradicated because if left alone and untreated, it will kill, right? Sin will kill. And have you noticed how the presence of unbelief in us is often subtle, right? We don't always see it clearly. It's never a sin that shouts that says, you know, I don't believe God. Our doubts, our doubts and our unbelief can seem... Uh, to be understandable, even justifiable. We make excuses for it. You know, I'll say, look, I won't share the gospel with my uncle because uh, he's too far gone. You know, he's really wretched. Uh, he's an alcoholic and I don't see someone like him ever listening to the gospel. Well, then you have unbelief in the saving power of the Lord, right? Then you can make many other examples where at the root of what, you, what you're doing or what you're saying or what you're not doing is unbelief. But like all sin... And all fallenness, unbelief is spiritually dangerous. And what we really need, even though we might prefer to avoid it, is for the Lord Jesus to mercifully help us to see our unbelief, to confess it, to repent of it, even if that means momentary painful discipline, right? So, um, in chapter 10, if you go to chapter 10, Peter, so verse 20, verse 28, Peter says, Peter began to say to him, See, See, we see. Have we have left everything and followed you? Jesus said, "Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions and in the age to and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So, remember, there is a cost to following the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's also a reward. And the Lord means to say here that he himself makes up for every loss. So, if you give up uh, a mother's affection and concern for the sake of the gospel, you get back 100 times the affection and concern from the ever-present Christ. If you give up the comradeship of a brother or a sister, you get back 100 times the warmth and, and, and fellowship from Christ. If you give up your comfort and your home and every possession, 
you get back 100 times the comfort and security of knowing that your Lord, that your Lord owns every house and land and the whole earth, right? That's what we can take from that passage, this passage. And verse 31, he says, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first because Jesus, Jesus will call them. So Jesus will call them and say to them in, in verse 42 to the disciples, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be the slave of all, right? To be great, to be the best, to be number one in God's kingdom is to be the servant of all. So, um, okay, the, the last thing we will look at in Mark's gospel is chapter 16. So please turn there. So in chapter 16, um, verse 1 says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on in the, day, in the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And we go to verse 6. And he said to them, um, sorry, verse 5, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they, where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Right. So, uh, I don't know about you, maybe in your... In your Bible translation, you will see some brackets or a footnote saying uh, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, chapter 16, verse 9 to 20, right? I use the ESV and that's what it says here. And um, does anyone have any questions about that and why we leave it out? So most, most Christians today would actually leave out verse 9 to 20. Right, including me, right? I, I would not take that as being part of scripture. And it's quite a special thing to say that we are leaving this out of our Bibles, right? As in we do not count it as part of scripture. We don't see it as God's word. And the reason we do this is because of what is called textual criticism. So our earliest Greek manuscripts, right, the Greek copies of the Bible, they do not have this ending to Mark's gospel. And we know that the literary style and the grammar of these verses, they do not belong to Mark. It's radically different, right? Just as if you are a school teacher and you have a class of kids and you teach Greek uh, or, or English or any other language, you can tell like, okay, wait, this is not Kaya's writing, right? This is, the, this is not the way he writes. This is Tando's writing, you know, so Kaya probably copied because... You get to know the way people write or speak if you know the language well enough, right? Then you can pick up the differences. So all Greek scholars basically say that this is not Mark's style, right? This is not him writing. So why would these verses be here? So look at look at how it does end. Look how, let's say that the book does end in verse 8, which says, so, okay, verse 7, but go tell his disciples that he's going before you. There you will see him. And verse 8 and when they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Full stop. Right. 
And in the Greek, it ends in a, in a conjunction. The word is ga, G-A-A-H, which would be like ending your, your sentence in English with the word for or the word because, right? And that's a bad way to, to end any sentence. And English rules say you must not end your sentences with a preposition. So it's, it's a very strange way to end. So the thinking is that somebody thought this is not a good way to end, so let's add some extra things. And that is why we have verse 9 to 20. So Mark and his style of writing, remember, it's not a good style of writing. It's been fast-paced, ever-moving story. Jesus and the disciples doing things in one place and then appearing in another. And then suddenly Mark ends and stops abruptly. Remember that this would be read out in public. So think of the dramatic effect of chapter 16. You're sitting there, someone is reading, and they say, Jesus rises from the dead, and the women flee, they are trembling, and astonishment had seized them, and they ran away. The end. It's quite dramatic. It's like a, it's like a movie ending with a cliffhanger. So I think the person, or the people who added this, added it because they did not like the ending. But if you understand what Mark is doing, then the ending is perfect. It's just like the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah ends in the same way. It ends with the cliffhanger. Mark is trying to shock people to catch a wake up because the disciples all the way through are not getting it. They are not understanding Jesus and the gospel. And we know that these ladies, later on by God's grace, they overcome their fear and they were able to proclaim the gospel. So that's something we know through textual criticism. And it's an important tool. It's a great thing. Through textual criticism, you can tell what the original Bible was. And so we know God's word has not changed from the very beginning. And God has preserved his word just like he said he would. You know, other, other religions, so the Quran cannot do that, right? There were many editions of the Quran, but one, one imam said, destroy all the other versions, we'll just keep this one, right? But now they cannot tell that this is the, the, this is the one, the correct one. But because we as believers, we have so many textual variations, we're able to see different schools where different errors crept in, you know, where different scribal errors were made, and we're able to work backwards to see what the original Bible was. So it's actually a good thing because we can see what is correct and what is not correct. So, okay, we only have 20 minutes left. So are there any questions on Mark's Gospel there? Any questions, any thoughts? Just a quick question from me, Kaya. Yeah. Um, do any of the other Gospels support the verses 9 to 20? Do they support verses? What's written in verse 9 to 20? Well, I think uh, thematically they do, right? So thematically, like what, what they're saying, they do, which kind of fits in with uh, the theory that other people added it because they were like, no, we know how things went so let's go with that right because he mentions what the great commission and uh, jesus appearing to the disciples that are so in 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 a sense yes it does but the 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 issue is not necessarily with the content right it's more with the technical sites like why is this here it's not in the earliest copies of the of the of the bible uh the manuscripts and if I remember correctly, like it's two, it's two main manuscripts, like the two most reliable, most famous or the biggest manuscripts, right? Where like, you know, they're most reliable, they're not there. So it's, it's, that's just the thing. It's like, this was added. This was definitely added. That's for sure. So 
uh, content wise sure it, it's it's nothing going outside of the you know what we've seen in the other gospels but the issue is that it's not mock basically yeah okay so let's do luke's gospel right uh um, wanna... yes then that's right Sorry, just say that again. I didn't hear the first part of your question. I'm afraid like people say there are parts of the Bible that are missing or something like that. So it's like something is going to be actual thing, which is like assuming that there are parts of the Bible missing. Okay. So are you asking if are there, do I think there's parts of the Bible missing, essentially? Yeah. Um... No, I don't. I don't think there's there's parts of the Bible missing, like passages missing, um, because when it comes to the the whole, it's called the canon of Scripture, right? So when it comes to the Old Testament, the Old Testament it's quite simple, right? Because we rely on the the Jews, the the Jewish people kept the Old Testament, you know, those parts of Scripture, so. There isn't a concern of things missing there. In the New Testament, where I think that that question would mostly apply because, um, you know, what happened was there were writings from the apostles, right? And they would, and the early church kind of, quote unquote, decided what makes up um, the Bible. Um, that process, the thing is, I can't go into detail because it's going to take time. But there's, it's, it's sure that, you know, there's no parts missing, right? And there's no parts added. And it, it's through the whole thing of textual criticism and uh, using the manuscripts. So the manuscripts were basically copies of the Bible. And I think there's like around 24,000, 25,000 manuscripts, which is a lot, right, for a historical document. And so all these variations, all these, you know, with all those copies everything is consistently the same, right? Where something is missing, it's going to be like small. Where something is different, it's very small as well. So, yeah, there's there's no doubt that there's like anything missing, really. So, yeah, there's, there's a deeper answer to the question, but just uh, we don't really have that much time for it. But um, if you want, you can stay behind and we can talk about it. Okay. Let me get to Luke's gospel. So, um, we only have 17 minutes. Okay, we'll make it worth our time, guys. So, you have Luke's gospel, and Luke is the largest contributor to the New Testament by number of words. Okay, so Luke wrote this gospel, and he wrote the book of Acts. And we're going to look at Acts next week. Luke is the movement of Christ towards Jerusalem. And... Acts is the movement of G of the church away from Jerusalem. So Christ is it's here in this book. It's Christ moving towards Jerusalem uh, up until the final days where he's crucified, and then the church is formed in Jerusalem, and then it leaves and it spreads and goes throughout the world. So Luke spends a lot of time with the movement of the Lord Jesus Christ towards Jerusalem, right? He spends ten chapters on this, whereas Matthew and Mark will spend one or two chapters. 
And Luke's gospel gives us a lot of parables and teachings that we don't find in the other gospels. So if you go to chapter 1, verse 3 says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So there's no vision, there's no dream, there's no angel appearing to him and saying, Thou shalt write the story. Luke says, it seemed like a good idea to write you to write to you, Theophilus, an account of the life of Jesus. And it was inspired, right? This is God's inspired word. It was actually the word of God. Theophilus could be either a real person or it could refer to a group of people. So Theophilus means, well, the word Theo means God, right? So we study in theology, the knowledge of God. Um, and Phyllis means lover. So uh, he could be writing to people he refers to as God lovers or, uh, um, you know, people who love God, or it's just one person named God lover. So Luke is a great pick-me-up of the Mark's gospel because it's about joy, right? It's a gospel of joy. He begins with joy and he ends with joy. In chapter 1, verse 46, there's a song of praise. It's called the Magnificat. If you, if you, if you read through it, it's, it's beautiful poetry. It's just exalting and praising the Lord. And... You have lots of singing and songs in this book. Um, you have Zechariah's prophecy. You have the angels singing. And so it's tremendous joy. And we will see how it ends with joy as well. So in chapter 3, there's the genealogy, right? If you go down to verse 23 of chapter 3, it says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matta, uh, Metat, the son of Levi, the son of Malki, etc., etc. So this genealogy, and we mentioned this on Monday, is quite different to the one in Matthew's gospel. Most people actually think this is Mary's genealogy, not Joseph's one. Even though it says Joseph, in the Greek, the way it's put suggests that this is Mary's genealogy. And the text also says that it was, uh, in my translation, it says, you know, he was a supposed son of Joseph. Back then, in those times, you wouldn't mention a woman. In a, in a genealogy. It always follow, followed the male. In Matthew's gospel, we get Joseph's genealogy. But you could say that, Je and you could say that Jesus isn't Joseph's son because, you know, Joseph was his stepfather. So in that case, how is he a descendant of David? Well, legally, he was a descendant of David because Jesus was adopted by Joseph. And with adoption comes all the legal rights of an heir, even though Joseph is not his biological father. So on the father's side, he is a descendant of David. But here we also see that Mary is a descendant of David as well, because we have her genealogy. And Paul also tells us in Romans that Jesus is a descendant of David according to the flesh. So we know that Mary is a descendant of David. And the genealogy ends in verse 38. It says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So there's also this idea of Christ as the true Adam. And that works out nicely in chapter 4 of Luke. So go to chapter 4. In chapter 4, Jesus is the true Adam. Remember, Jesus was hungry and he was tempted to turn, he was tempted by Satan to turn the stones into bread. And so he was tempted to get some food, right? Instead of trusting God to provide, Satan wanted Jesus to step outside of his submission to the Father in being fully human to get the food. And that's what Jesus was tempted with. Adam was tempted the same in the garden. He was tempted with food, only he gave in to that. 
where Adam failed in his temptation, Jesus doesn't. And there's contrast, right? Adam wasn't hungry and he wasn't in the wilderness. He was in the garden in paradise. And so Christ begins his ministry and he's anointed by the Holy Spirit. So chapter 4 verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord, uh, the year of the Lord's favor. So this is Jesus' Jesus's first sermon, and here he's quoting from, he's preaching from Isaiah 61. He's proclaiming good news. It's not, it's not good news, get yourselves out of jail. It is good news, he has come to set captives free. He has come to deliver people, right? This language is year of jubilee language. The year of jubilee in Judaism was a year when all debts and all slaves were to be written off. So if you owed someone money or they owed you, you had to write it off, right? If you were a slave to someone, you had to be set free. This would be really nice to have in this day and age if you've got like a mortgage or you're paying off a car, right? And the, the year of jubilee was every 50th year. So every 50 years, debts had to be cancelled and written off. So remember, in the Jewish calendar, every seven years was, seventh year was a year of rest, right? So you work six years, the seventh year you rest. And then you had seven sevens, that's 49 years. So when the 49th, 49th year came, you would not only rest on the 49th year, but also on the 50th year. And all debts were cancelled and all slaves were set free. So the language Jesus is using here is Jubilee language. He's saying he's the, he's the Jubilee. Right, He's, He fulfilled the year of Jubilee because he sets us free from our bondage to sin. And so, um, as you read Luke, some of the major themes, uh, Luke's gospel focuses on some very, very interesting themes. Right, focuses on the lost. There's a focus on the lost and the outcasts and the Gentiles and the women and the sick. Right, Those are the outcasts in the society. In Matthew's gospel, in the Beatitudes, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And But when you read the Beatitude in Luke's gospel, so look at chapter 6. Look at chapter 6, verse 20. And notice what Luke says. Right? He says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew says, Those who are poor in spirit. What does that mean? It's, it's those who are spiritually bankrupt. It is your spiritual condition. You're poor and you realize you have nothing to offer God. You don't merit salvation. You don't merit his grace. Spiritually, you are poor and you need God. And Jesus says, happy are those. right? Because if you think that you are spiritually rich, then you are deceived. And you won't be able to receive his grace because you see no need to turn to him. But Luke says, blessed are the poor. Not the poor in spirit, but the poor. And there's this big focus on money and the rich and the poor in this gospel. Now, there's something called liberation theology. People like Desmond Tutu, uh, Alan Busak, and a lot of South African, South American, South American theologians, what they do is they turn the Bible into a political handbook. They like Luke's gospel because Luke is telling us God is for the poor and for the oppressed, right? God is on their side. And what they've done is, They've taken terms out of their historical context and have taken them into our context. So if we think poor, what do we think? We think you have no money, you struggle to get food and the basics of life. We think socioeconomically. What liberation theologians will say is 
God is for the have-nots, but he's against the have, right? He's, against, he's for the poor, but he's against the rich. And it leads to a socialism, communism-style theology. But poor in the Old Testament context, what does it mean in the Old Testament context? Is God just for poor people? Is he anti-rich people? When God is for poor people, what type of poor people is he for? He's for those who trust him. That is the idea. In the Old Testament and the time in the society that Jesus is born into, the poor are the people who trust God. Right? It's not saying all, all poor people is who God is for. Right? God is not for the poor people who hate him or the poor people who rob and steal and blaspheme his name. He's for the poor people that trust him. Right? Is God against all rich people? No. He wasn't against Abraham or Job or Solomon or even the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul was also rich. He's against the rich who oppress and don't trust God and hate other people. So don't trust in liberation theology, because in any case, if you if you are a have-not and, you know, all of a sudden you have, you have, what's going to happen? You win the lottery and you become a millionaire. And uh, firstly, give me your number. And then secondly, is then God against you? No, it's not, right? It's it's self-refuting. Um, another theme is women. Luke's gospel is concerned about women more than any other gospel. He mentions women frequently, right, all the time. And he mentions their involvement and what they are doing. So women had a secondary social status in ancient Israel. The Jews did not see them as human beings, let alone treat them as such. But the gospel of Luke shows us women from a wide range of social standings. And it often portrays their interactions with Jesus in parallel with similar interactions he had with men, right? So it's indirectly saying that men and women are both equal in value and worth and dignity. And Jesus disregarded cultural norms to help the outcast and the marginalized. And in many cases, that meant doing unthinkable things as a Jewish rabbi, right? And, to, and, and what that means is that he, he treated women like people created in the image of God, and profoundly loved by God, right? And it's sad that that's the kind of society it was back then, but that's what it was. But uh, and and so in Luke's in Luke we see how women played prominent roles in Jesus's ministry. Another theme is money. There's also a big focus on money in Luke's gospel. A lot of teaching about money, a lot of parables about money. In the entire Bible, I don't know if you know this, but in the entire Bible there are more verses about money than prayer and grace combined. Do you know that? The Bible speaks way more about money than prayer and grace. Why do you think that is? Because money is an important thing. God does not waste words. He's teaching us principles. So money is incredibly important. Jesus said, if he cannot trust you with, with money, how can he trust you with true riches? Right? You can be the most zealous, passionate person for the Lord, and yet think that money is, a, is such a worldly, carnal thing. But the Lord speaks on it again and again. Right? And we are, taught, we are told to learn to look after money and to spend it wisely and to use it for God's kingdom. Right? We are to use it for worship and not to idolize it. So that's one. And then another theme is prayer. Luke focuses a lot on prayer. Jesus, before he makes any major decisions, we find in prayer. Like when, he's choos when he chooses the disciples. We see Jesus praying all the time. We see him teaching on prayer. You know, the Lord's Prayer, which we also see in Matthew's Gospel. 
and there are parables on prayer. Remember the woman and the unjust judge? This is in Luke 18, verse 1 to 8, about the woman who, who nags. You know, she keeps on nagging the unjust judge for justice. She's begging for justice. And eventually the judge gets annoyed and she gets it, right, from the unjust judge. And so the Lord says, how much more will your just father hear your prayers? So we don't, uh, we won't go into detail, but the focus on prayer is, is also very convicting because those are areas in our lives where we battle, right? So in your, if you do have time, I encourage you to read um, all that Luke has to say and what the Lord Jesus teaches us about prayer. And uh, another theme, another major theme that you'll see standing out is joy, right? You will see there's a lot of joy in this gospel. Like I said, joy in the parables, you know, the parables of finding the hidden treasure, finding the lost sheep, the prodigal son returning. There's joy all the way through. But Luke, Luke doesn't just link joy to the end, to the day of the Lord, right? Doesn't just link it to the return of Christ. A lot of the time, the biblical authors will link joy to what is coming ahead. They will say we can rejoice because Christ is coming at the end and he will make everything right. And that is that is true. That is right. right? That is, that is something we can look forward to. But Luke doesn't just deal with the end. He says you and I can have joy now. right? If you walk right with the Lord, you can know joy because you are saved. You can know joy because you are in communion with God. Right, you are in fellowship with God. You hear His Word preached. You you spend time in His Word. You speak to God through prayer, right? And that is a joy that should be a joy for us, right? Uh, think of the Psalms that speak of God's Word and how it describes it as a joy. You know, it's the greatest joy. It's a delight to the Psalm. It's a balm for the soul, and all these things. So those are uh, these are the main important themes that you will see in Luke's Gospel. Um, and so if you turn to chapter 24, in closing, in chapter 24, Jesus appears to the disciples, right? And if you look at verse 40, it says, And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, while they, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And that's an interesting statement, right? For joy. They disbelieved for joy. It's almost like it's too much for the disciples to take in. Right? They are too happy. They can't even take it in. They're struggling to take it in the way they're so happy. Verse 44, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So if you were with us from uh, the start, when we were looking at the Old Testament, I kept saying that the whole of the Old Testament is about Christ. And here we have Jesus saying that. And notice how he mentions the three sections of the Old Testament. right? He mentions the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. So remember, uh, that's the law is the first five books and the historical books together. And then the Psalms refers to wisdom literature. And then the prophets is both major and minor prophets. That is the entire Old Testament. right? Jesus says... Um, everything written about about me there must be fulfilled. And he fulfills that. Verse 45, Then he opened their minds. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed 
in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So it sounds like the Great Commission, right? It sounds like the Great Commission that we hear, we see in Matthew's Gospel, doesn't it? But he says it must begin in Jerusalem because, again, the good news is to be proclaimed to the Jew first and then the Gentiles. And that sets up Luke's next, gospel, next book, which is the book of Acts, right? The church starts in Jerusalem and then it goes out to all the nations. In verse 48 says, you are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending you, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So that's a glorious ending, isn't it? Um, Luke gives us a whole story, even though we didn't have time to go through the whole story. Um, Mark cuts his gospel short, you know, just gives you the highlights. But Luke gives us a much bigger picture, which gives us joy. So um, we'll stop it there. Are there any questions? Are there any thoughts that you guys would like to share?